0: Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I think I surprised Pastor Brett. He's not used to me coming from behind him. He doesn't know I was looking over his shoulder the entire time. Thank you, brother, for playing. So thankful for the ways in which the Lord has gifted this brother to lead in our worship and liturgy. Acts chapter 4, in our text this morning, we'll begin in verse 32 and we will make our way into chapter 5, verse 11. So we will not follow the chapter break. I told someone this last week, I never was asked about where to place chapter breaks. Had I been asked, I think I would have placed it differently here, but this is fine. We're going to preach Acts four thirty two through chapter 5, verse 11. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? Acts 4, and we will begin reading in verse 32, Luke writes as he is carried along by God's Spirit, these words. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. that you have contrived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever maybe seated when you think of a spirit-filled church a spirit-filled church what do you envision perhaps you imagine a church with a particular style of music maybe your imagination takes you to a church where everyone is fairly expressive In worship, when the songs are being sung, people have their hands raised, people are kneeling, people are doing various things expressing their devotion to God bodily. Some may assume that the Spirit-filled church is one in which extraordinary signs and wonders occur on a normative basis such as tongues, prophecy, and healings. It could be that you imagine when you consider what it is to be the Spirit-filled church, you imagine that this is the church that experiences rapid growth comparable to the growth we observe in the early chapters of the book of Acts itself. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32 and running through chapter 5 verse 11, Luke continues to tell the story of the newly birthed church that has recently received what we could call baptism in or by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and has also received a subsequent filling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 4 verse 31 after they had prayed and the place in which they had gathered was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is is the church in Jerusalem and Luke is describing this Newly formed, newly birthed church. And this church was operating in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, just as the Lord Jesus had promised them. He had told them, of course, his disciples, when they were few in number, to stay in the city of Jerusalem and to wait for power from on high that he would send, that the Father would send through him. And that day came at the day on the day of Pentecost when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And now this church empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit is bearing testimony to the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ in and around Jerusalem. Well, in our text, Luke continues to describe this church. And we could say it this way. In our text, Luke answers the question, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? What do you think of when you think of the Spirit-filled church? The church that is operating, as it were, in the presence of and under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes This morning, we are going to make our way through this text by identifying and unpacking three symptoms of the Spirit-filled church. Three symptoms of the Spirit-filled church in the text. We're not suggesting, by the way, these are the only symptoms of the Spirit-filled church. That's not, I don't think, what Luke is trying to do as he's carried along by the Spirit of God. However, he is saying that when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, it will indeed exercise these characteristics. It will be found with these symptoms that we discover in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. So that's the broad outline for us this morning. Now, I've been doing this the last few weeks. I plan on continuing to do this. As we move through this outline, I want our younger worshipers to look for a couple of things, okay? So this is all within the broader outline of the sermon. So our younger worshipers in the room, some of you children, I want you to look for a couple of things in the text. Parents, grandparents, guardians, help them. There's no shame in leaning over and talking to a younger worshiper in the middle of the sermon if what you're talking about is the sermon, If you're talking about something else, I'm going to assume with charity you're not that you're talking about the thrilling sermon you're listening to. A couple of things, younger worshipers, I want you to look for, okay? Here they are. First of all, as we're moving through this text, what did some of the early Christians do to help meet the needs of other Christians? What did they do? What did some of these early Christians do to meet the needs of other Christians? Very important for you to understand this as Luke describes this church. Secondly, secondly, to whom did Ananias lie? There are two answers in the text. It is, I'll give you a hint, the same person, however. Ananias lies. Sapphira, his wife, lies. To whom are they lying, according to Luke? Okay, so first, what did some of the early Christians do to help meet the needs of other Christians? Second, to whom did Ananias lie? And please, you older worshipers, feel free to help them along. And talk about this later, later today. Getting your younger worshiper in the text of the Word of God on the Lord's Day. So, back to our broader outline symptoms. The first symptom, the first symptom of the Spirit filled church. Let me give it to you and then we'll unpack it in the text. Here's the first symptom generous commonality. Generous commonality. Look with me at verse 32 where we find a broad description of this first symptom, generous commonality. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But notice, they had everything in common. Now, before we unpack This expression of generous commonality. We're going to do that in just a moment. Before we get there, let's talk for just a moment about the foundation of the commonality. In other words, where is this Christian commonality? Where does it reside? What's the basis for the church's unity in the text? Look again at verse 32. It's implied. Now the full number of those who believed. Don't miss that. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. What did each person believe? They believed the message of Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' sinless life and obedience to the Father. They believed the message of Jesus' death on the cross in our place and for our sins. They believed the message that declared that Jesus Christ had been buried And that on the third day he was raised bodily from the dead in glorious power. They believed the message that stated and witnessed to Christ's ascension into heaven who now sits at the right hand of the Father praying for the church. They believed the message that this same Jesus would someday come back to this earth to finish what he started. These were believers in Jesus Christ. And so what united the church, don't miss this, it undergirds everything we're talking about under this first symptom. What united the early church was not shared hobbies. It was not shared interests. Not merely. Doubtless there were some who shared hobbies and others that didn't. What well, united the early church was not shared vocations. It wasn't a shared social or economic status. It was not the same demographic. What well, united the early church was not a group of people that were the same age or stage of life. What well, united the early church Was not an ethnic identity. An ethnic identity that is transcended in Christ by something greater. By the way, that is foreign to the world around us right now. A world who reduces humanity merely to ethnicity. What united the church was the gospel of Jesus Christ not some lesser or inferior binding agent. This is extremely important for us. After all, birds of a feather flock together. It's just human tendency, isn't it? But do something for me for just a moment. Look around the room. You will find people who are older than you, people who are younger than you, people of the same demographic, people who are of a different demographic. If you were to explore one another's financial status, something I wouldn't encourage you to do until you're well into the relationship. (laughs) After all, such questions can be off-putting. You would find that in this room, there are different measures of stewardship in the area of finances or affluency. What binds us together is not a shared hobby. As as much as I enjoyed last night going with a group of some of our younger members and even others in playing volleyball, I've done this the last few weeks, which is why I'm walking with a limp. I am 40 now, after all, as I told them last night. (laughs) Yeah, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Volleyball didn't unite the group even last night, really. Really? In fact, it may have divided the group at times. No, what unites us as a church and what united the early church was nothing less than a shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is extremely important for understanding the nature of the church. This meant that the church was a collection of difference. Different people, diverse people who bore testimony to the power of the transforming grace of God through Christ. People that could all tell the story that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection was transforming them. That's what binds us together, church. Again, we can't say this enough. We need to be aware of this. Like other people, Christians tend to gather With others who share similar interests or at a similar stage of life, this isn't wrong. Don't hear me saying it is. In fact, it can be an instrument of God's grace in your life, but it's not fundamentally who the church is. And if the church is ever reduced to a collection of people who are gathered around anything less than the gospel, that church runs the risk of centralizing the gospel. Really, we should say decentralizing it. You see, if my identity is simply with those who are at the same stage of life I'm in, and my community is merely with those who are at the same stage of life I'm in, then over time, I'm at risk. I'm at risk of highlighting something less than, lesser than the gospel that binds me to these other brothers and sisters. So by all means, enjoy those with shared interests. Enjoy a game of volleyball with others who play volleyball. I try. Enjoy those who are at a similar stage of life. That's fine. Praise the Lord for shared encouragement as you parent your young ones from other parents or as you're enduring the challenges of high school or middle school with others who are enduring those same challenges. Teenagers, that's fine. Or as you're getting higher in age as a seasoned follower of Jesus Christ, enjoy the time with other seasoned followers of Jesus Christ, but for heaven's sake, don't limit your interactions there. Step outside of those relationships and pour into the broader family, a diverse family called the church. A church that is rooted fundamentally in a shared faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, I I want to say this before we move on here, and I've probably said more than I planned on saying at this point. Jesus taught us this when he started calling his disciples. Think about it for just a moment, and we'll move on to talk more about this symptom. But this is all foundational to this symptom. Jesus calls Simon, who is known as the zealot, which means he's a part of a group of revolutionaries that despise Rome. They make it their ambition in life to overthrow Rome. And he calls out of the same breath, as it were, a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector. For whom? Rome. He calls a man who sides with Rome, taxes Jews as a Jew, which is even worse because now you're a traitor. Jesus takes these two and places them in the same church. How? Because he's the binding agent. Their political affiliation is not what unified them it was their shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a massive church. This is how we will endure until Jesus Christ returns. Any other unity won't do. It won't do and it cannot withstand persecution like shared faith in Christ can. So, the believers expressed this commonality that was rooted in their shared faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how did they express it? They expressed it through generosity. As they celebrated their shared faith in the gospel, they were generous with others. Notice that as verse 34 indicates, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So there were some who owned property, Owned houses and those who owned the property or owned the houses, as these needs would surface in the body of Christ, what would they do? They were willing to sell their property to meet the needs. Of others. And verse 35 indicates that they placed the proceeds from the sale of their possessions before the apostles. They, they placed these proceeds at the apostles' feet, indicating a kind of submissive posture in service to the body of Christ and a trust in Jesus Christ who was building his church. And then those proceeds were distributed to the members who had needs as those needs surfaced. This was a generous commonality. Additionally, I want you to notice that this generous commonality was voluntary. It wasn't forced. It wasn't compulsory. The picture is of each believer willingly offering his or her generous support for the body of Christ. In fact, this becomes quite clear in Acts chapter five in Peter's words, his engagement with Ananias. What did he say to Ananias? Ananias While you owned the property, was it not yours? In other words, no one forced you to sell it. You could have kept it. Essential, by the way, to gospel giving is is that it's voluntary. It's not under compulsion. It's not forced. Peter goes on to say that, moreover, even when you did sell it, The proceeds were yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with them. You were the steward. God had granted these proceeds to whom God had granted these proceeds. And so you you must notice this, this giving that you find, this sacrificial, generous commonality that is being shared in the early church is voluntary. Keep that in mind. But the picture of loving, generous, thoughtful, self-sacrificial commonality in Christ was expressed to such an extent that Luke will say, he'll say this, there was not a needy person among them in verse 34. Do you see that? Not a needy person among them. This, this is another way of saying, not that no needs surface. We, we know that's, that's quite the opposite of what Luke says. He says, as any had need, then the proceeds were distributed to those who had need. And so it's not that there were no needs, it's that when there were needs, they were met by the family. The family being the body of Christ, the early church. And by the way, I think this is an allusion to Deuteronomy. Uh, you'll remember this without me at mentioning it, right? If you've been with us for a couple of years, back in Deuteronomy 15, verse four, Pastor Tim could quote it right now. won't ask him to do that. There, there the Lord promised the people of Israel through Moses this, there will be no poor among you. That was the promise. A day is coming when you enter the land. When God fulfills his promise to his people. And when that day comes, there will be no poor among you. What is Luke saying? Luke's saying God is fulfilling his promise even in Deuteronomy 15. Through Christ in the church. No one's in need. Luke then takes the general description of this generous commonality in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. And he presents a specific example. So we're still talking about this first symptom of a Spirit-filled church, this generous commonality. And now he hones in on a particular person. This person is named Joseph. He's also known as Barnabas, which if you read through the book of Acts, And you probably know him as Barnabas. Look with me at verses 36 and 37 where Luke writes these words. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, maybe son of exhortation. That's possible, I lean that way. Son of encouragement's fine. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, verse 37, what did he do? Barnabas just did what a whole host of other Christians were doing. He sold a field. And that field belonged to him and he willingly, we could put that there, it's not explicit in the text, it's implicit in the text because of the context. He willingly brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, all of it. That's the assumption. In fact, he sold it for the purpose, and that's the point. He sold it for the purpose of meeting the needs of the saints, of blessing the church, of giving generously, and expressing this generous commonality. So he sold this field belong, that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Same words that are used prior to this. Barnabas, by the way, is going to appear prominently in Acts chapter 13 and 14. We're going to get back to Barnabas. We're not going to spend a lot of time on him here. But Barnabas is going to be the companion and, in some respects, the mentor of the apostle Paul. Now, now Paul, as it were, eclipses Barnabas in his influence. And isn't that one of the joys of discipleship? Yeah. Amen. Oh, God, eclipse our influence by those whom we disciple. It's not an overstatement, I don't think, to say there's no Apostle Paul without God's mercy given through Barnabas. That's Barnabas, and he's gonna go on This first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, we're going to get back to him. He is the example in our text of the typical generous commonality expressed in the early church. Now, keep in mind, we could transfer all of these symptoms. We've just talked about one. We're going to talk about number two, which is shorter, and then number three, which is longer. Okay, I'll keep an eye on the time. We could take any of these symptoms and we could adapt them to exhortations, So if the symptom is, the symptom of being a spirit-filled church is generous commonality, we could transfer this into something like this. Demonstrate your unity in Christ through generosity. You see, every one of these symptoms can be transferred to an exhortation, which of course is what the Spirit of God is doing as he describes the spirit-filled church. Church family, look for opportunities to demonstrate your unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ with one another. In this local church even, certainly outside of this local church, absolutely, there are biblical reasons for doing so. We are a part of a broader family than simply the family at First Baptist Powell. But First Baptist Powell is our immediate commitment, our initial commitment to Christ and to his people. Look for opportunities to be generous, to express generously our shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I won't call anybody out, but I will say, you do. You do. I see it and I hear about it, and it's such a privilege to be a part of a church where brothers and sisters are looking for those opportunities. And if you're not partaking of that or you're not in a position to partake of that, make it your ambition to partake of that, to participate in that. You know, oftentimes in a church, some of, our, some of our more seasoned brothers and sisters are in a position to give generously. You know how they got there? Through stewardship, trust in Jesus Christ, and a recognition of our shared commonality in the gospel. They brought them to the point at which they're able to give generously to the body of Christ. Young people, make this a goal of yours. I need to make it a goal of mine to demonstrate increasing generosity to the body of Jesus Christ. Second symptom of the Spirit-filled church. In addition to generous commonality, we find gospel preaching This is going to be brief because we've made much of this already. We will make much of it again. It appears only in one verse, but it's right there in the middle of it all. Gospel preaching, the second symptom. Notice verse 33. So we're kind of going back at this point. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There it is again. And then notice, not just the apostles. Great grace was upon them all. It wasn't merely the apostles that had received God's great grace. And as a result, by implication, who were bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this was an activity all the church was participating in. The apostles were simply leading in this respect. Which is why I think they're explicitly mentioned in the text. After all, chapter 4, verse 31, just before our text actually read these words. This was a couple of weeks ago before Easter. We preached through chapter four, verse 31, where Luke writes, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is what the church is doing. The Spirit-filled church boldly proclaims the gospel. There is this gospel proclamation that is present in all that the church does. It's who we are. It's our commission until Jesus Christ returns. We proclaim Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That is our ambition. It's really quite simple as a church. And Luke will not allow us to lose sight of this fundamental symptom for the presence of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to do what? You shall be my witnesses. So the second symptom of the Spirit-filled church is gospel proclamation. Keep in mind that this gospel proclamation is in direct disobedience to the Jewish religious leaders. Remember this? Back in chapter four, Peter and John had been arrested they were put in custody for a day, for a night, and then they were pulled out of this, this imprisonment, as it were, and they were interrogated. And as they were being interrogated and asked about why they were teaching the people and why they were healing this crippled man who was sitting at this gate of the temple known as the Beautiful Gate, why were they doing this in the name of Jesus, When they were interrogated about this, of course, they responded, look, we can't help but declare these things that we have seen and heard. And they were warned, in that context, they were warned by the Jewish leaders no longer to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. The language is at all. What are they doing? They're disobeying. They're disobeying Jewish religious leaders out of a desire to obey the King of kings and Lord of lords. The church has always been filled with the Spirit of God for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, gospel proclamation. Again, we could transfer this symptom, couldn't we? We could transfer this symptom into an instruction by the power of the Spirit, 1st Baptist Powell, proclaim Christ. Go and preach Christ. Share the gospel with your friends. Share the gospel with your family members, parents. Gather your children around on a regular basis and share the message of the gospel with them. Talk about Christ. Pray about Christ. Look for opportunities to proclaim Christ for in so doing, you are actually, you are actually recognizing and exercising one of these fundamental symptoms of what it means to be a member of the Spirit-filled church. Preach Christ. Third, in addition to generous commonality and gospel preaching or proclamation, we find godly fear. Interesting symptom. Godly fear fear, not one likely that we think about when we think about the Spirit-filled church. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The tone of the text changes. The topic does not. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He's just told the story of Barnabas, who was exemplary. But a man named Ananias... With his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, as I just mentioned, there's a clear contrast in the text. And the contrast is between Barnabas and really the entire church, the spirit-filled church, and this man named Ananias and his wife, After all, the language Luke uses to describe Ananias, and this puzzles some. After all, what did he do wrong? The language Luke uses translated keeping back some of the money for himself. That language, by the way, always carries negative connotations. It only occurs a couple of times in the New Testament. It occurs in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I'll tell you where it occurs in the Old Testament, actually. Joshua chapter 7. The sin of Achan. When a man named Achan actually keeps back for himself what is to be devoted exclusively to the Lord. Same word use. Fascinating, isn't it? I think we're actually supposed to think of Joshua 7 here as we read this text. This is another example of sin in the camp, and it's serious. What Ananias and Sapphira were doing is something akin to embezzlement. At least that's the word that's used. Pilfering, misappropriating funds for one's own benefit. As we're gonna see, Ananias' focus is where? It's self. He keeps back considering himself and he pretends There it is. He pretends to give everything. Why? To elevate self in the eyes of others. He's fallen prey to the sin of hypocrisy. And as a result, duplicity or deceit. Peter makes it clear that Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not merely in withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of their property, it was theirs. They could have chosen not to sell the property. And after they sold the property, they could have chosen to give a portion to the church. But instead, they postured themselves as if they were giving everything to the church. Peter even asks Sapphira, tell me, did you sell the land for so much? In other words, the Greek text reads something like this. Did you sell the land for this much? And her answer was, yes. Yes for that much. She lied out of hypocrisy and self-aggrandizement to appear righteous before others. There is sin in the spirit-filled church in Jerusalem. The sin of hypocrisy and the sin of deceit. Look further. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has, notice this, Satan filled your heart. By the way, it's the same language of the Spirit filling the church. Terrifying. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now don't miss this. Ananias is not being coerced by Satan to do this. He's choosing to do it. He is a willing and participating party. This is often our problem, isn't it? It's not that Satan makes us do something. It's just so often that we tend to agree if we're not careful with what he tempts us to do. That's what Ananias is doing. He's agreeing with Satan's temptation. And as a result, Peter describes this as Satan filling his heart. Ananias is complicit, which is also why, by the way, Peter asks Ananias, why? He doesn't ask Satan this question. He knows why. He asks Ananias, the professing Christian and member of the Jerusalem church. And notice, younger worshipers, this is where you want to pay close attention to the second question I asked you earlier. Notice, Peter describes Ananias as lying to the Holy Spirit in verse three. You see that? Chapter five, verse three, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 4, to whom is Ananias lying? To God, yes. And you're thinking, I didn't know if it was rhetorical. To God. So on the one hand, Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? On the other hand, he says, you have not lied to men. You've lied to God. So which is it? Yes. 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 In lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias is lying to God. In fact, even just this week, I was reading a commentary. I sent, I sent uh, Pastor Brett a text because I was excited about receiving this commentary. This commentary is written around 709 A.D. on the book of Acts. It was thrilling to get this commentary. And it was written by a man named who eventually became known as the Venerable Beatty. I'm not known as the Venerable Perry, but he was known as the Venerable. And um, of course, not right on everything, he was a mere man, but one of the earliest commentaries on the book of Acts, and I was reading through just the last couple of days some of his comments in the first few chapters in the book of Acts 1,300 years ago. He points out right here this very point, one that I had already intended on pointing out, That in lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias is lying to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is divine. This is a clear affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, get this, you won't get too far afield on this, but you need to know this. This is also why the church historically has said that the Holy Spirit is not a mere power. You don't lie to a power. You lie to a person. And so this is why the church has historically identified and described the Holy Spirit as divine, one of the three members of the Trinity, and as a person in the Godhead. The church had already faced opposition from the outside back in chapter four. You know this if you've been with us. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the Jewish religious leaders were already persecuting the church, warning the church, it's going to get worse in Acts now, though, now, in Acts chapter 5, the church faces opposition from within. And this may be the most dangerous opposition the church faces. We, we are, I am, okay, I am, I perhaps shouldn't put you in this, in this position, I am consistently concerned about the opposition we'll face from the outside. God's word consistently cautions us about the opposition we'll face from the inside. And this is the case throughout Israel's history. Israel consistently thought that their greatest enemy, enemies were other nations outside of them. God consistently instructed Israel that their greatest enemy was in Israel. Israel was Israel's greatest enemy. Their own sin would be their demise. And the same warning applies right here for the church in Acts chapter five. Our greatest enemy comes from within. It's unrepentant hypocrisy, deceit, unrepentant sin and rebellion that surfaces from within us. As verse five indicates, when Ananias heard the words of Peter, he fell to the ground and died. He breathed his last. And now notice how verse five concludes that little section, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, take note of that. What happened as a result in the Spirit-filled church, what happened as a result of divine judgment that fell on Ananias and on Ananias' hypocrisy? Great fear in the church. Let's keep going and Look further, after the young men came in, they wrapped up the body, as was customary, by the way. They buried Ananias, and we're just gonna summarize the next few verses. The same divine judgment fell upon his wife, Sapphira. Same judgment. Because she committed the same sin. Now look with me at verse 11. We just summarized a few verses. Verse 11, what does it say? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So fear didn't come upon the church merely. It came upon those outside of the church. In fact, rather than making unbelievers more comfortable in church. That sound familiar? Rather than doing our best to make those who don't trust in Jesus Christ as comfortable as possible in the church, Look at verse 13. We're getting past our text, but it relates to our text. Look at verse 13 of chapter five. None of the rest dared what? Join them. How's that for a method and a strategy for church growth? No one dared join them. They're terrified to join. Two people just died in the middle of the church assembly for their hypocrisy and their deceit. I'm not going in there. All right, so they get their letter in the mail. We'd love to have you at First Baptist Pal on Easter. Nah. No thanks. I want to be alive throughout Easter. Right? I'm just poking at us a little bit and me. Astounding, isn't it? So this fear wasn't, wasn't unique to the church, although I would argue that there are different kinds of fear, and that's perhaps a topic for another day. We'll come back to this fear over time through our exposition of the text of Scripture. But the kind of fear this text describes in the church, we'll say it this way, the kind of fear this text describes in the church, I take it, is reverence, awe, Of God resulting in an increased awareness of the seriousness of our sin that's that's fear that's gospel fear it's an increased awareness of the seriousness of our sin that grows out of this deep and eternal respect and reverence and awe of God we call fear the Bible calls fear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 equates the love of God with the fear of God. The two aren't mutually exclusive, but in some respects are synonyms describing the same posture in relationship to God. This, this may smack of, of legalism to us. I'll be honest, I mean, the reason it, I mention this is because it does to me. Because I've been taught to assume certain things about the fear of the Lord or about fear in general, that all fear is an enemy. There's a kind of fear that's a friend and a companion throughout our lives, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit of God for the glory of God in Christ. But this This narrative that exists in me, if I'm just frank, and perhaps it exists in you, assumes that this is somehow contrary to God being gracious or God being forgiving. Friends, the good news of the gospel is is not that God no longer takes our sins seriously as he did in the Old Testament. In fact, in some respects, the gospel teaches us how serious our sin really is. You see, in the gospel we learn that animal sacrifices are insufficient. Moreover, we learn that we are insufficient. We are insufficient as sinners and we are insufficient as finite creatures to pay the debt we owe to unimaginable, incomprehensible holiness. It's at the foot of the cross when I come to realize what sin really is. A kind of, if I could quote R.C. Sproul from some time ago, cosmic treason. And one that demands eternal judgment and demise. A payment that can only be paid sufficiently by the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. That's where I learn the seriousness of my sin. So the gospel you see doesn't teach me to take my sin lightly. Right as if God was some kind of benign forgiving grandpa. Just always responding to me with something like can I get you a Coke? Or do you need $20? No, no. By the way, that's not a shot at grandpa's. Grandpas are tremendous and faithfully often model the goodness of our God. No, no, the gospel teaches us that our crime is infinitely egregious and we are hopeless without Christ. As many have said throughout the last couple of decades, the gospel teaches us that we are far worse than we ever imagined. When we come to realize that, we can recognize that we are far more loved than we ever dreamed. Then we understand the grace of God in Christ more adequately. And I suspect we'll spend an eternity doing that. Because if the grace of God is infinite, it'll take us an eternity to come to realize this. In other words, we never really arrive. We'll spend an eternity in awe of what God has accomplished on our behalf through the work of Jesus Christ. So rather than calming our concern over the seriousness of our own sin, leaving us to presume on God's grace, the gospel impassions us and empowers us to repent of and renounce of Renounce, rather, what displeases our good, gracious, and holy God. So in our text, grace and fear coexist among God's people. Look at the text with me. Look back at chapter 4, verse 33. I just want to show you this briefly. Chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now notice this. And great what was upon them all? Great grace was upon them all. Now, look at chapter 5, verse 11. Great grace was upon them all. Chapter 5, verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church. So the great grace that is extended to us in the gospel is I would submit to you always accompanied by great fear. Reverence for our God that results in the desire to be authentically changed and transformed through the gospel. Now, please understand this, and we're gonna begin wrapping up with this. Understand that what we're talking about is not, not working toward or working for a right relationship with God. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an obedience to God and a submission to God that results in a right relationship with God. We do not work for a right relationship with God. More properly, we work from a right relationship with God. It's extremely important to understand Christianity. And so it's actually the gospel itself, the grace of God itself that teaches us to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation. So if you're here this morning and you're not in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't get there through your efforts. The only way to enter into a right relationship with Jesus Christ is on account of the grace of God in Christ received through faith in Christ. It's that simple. It's not what you're working for. It's actually what Christ has worked for. You. And then as you receive Christ Jesus, trusting in his death, resurrection, ascension, and promised future return, as you receive Jesus Christ and Christ is working in you and through you by the work of the Holy Spirit, now you're in a position to work from the grace you've received in Christ, to work from that right relationship with Christ. If you'd like to talk more about this, what it means to trust in Jesus, what it means to fear the Lord God, what it means to be a person upon whom great grace has been extended in Christ. We would love to visit with you. You can meet us after the service. Out of one of these doors, take a left, and on the right-hand side is that room called Crossroads. Go in there, and let's have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I have some friends We're wrapping up officially now. Second time, I think. I have some friends I won't name so as to avoid their embarrassment. They're not very expressive in worship. It's okay to be expressive in worship. I think it's okay not to be. We ought to have both probably. They're not. I've watched them for years. They just stand there and sing. Hands aren't typically raised. Don't know that I've ever seen a hand raised by any of them. I raise my hands from time to time. Some of you do, others of you don't. Signs and wonders don't characterize their lives. They would perhaps tell stories of God doing amazing things through prayer, things that are beyond their explanation, but these aren't normal for them. They're not typical. No, they experience the same challenges, same sufferings, same ailments that fall upon all of us. They are faithful members of their church, they're generous. They express their commonality through generosity. In fact, I could say it this way because I've not named them. They are probably some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. I know that not because they brag about it. You wouldn't know it. I know it because I've been the recipient of their generosity. And I happen to know others, by God's mercy, who have as well. They give consistently through offerings, special offerings, and so forth. God has has blessed them financially in unique ways. And they give it. Secondly, they boldly proclaim the gospel. Normal Christians preaching Christ. Not with the best rhetoric. You won't find them in the pulpit, they're in the pews. But every chance they get when they interact with someone else throughout the week, I've heard and I've watched because I've worked with them. They share the gospel. They're confident in Christ. Moreover, they take sin in their own life seriously. I've watched them over the years come to grips with a sin in their own life, in their own heart, and confess it. Repent of it. I've watched them in a conversation where they're being told, Hey, I think this sin may be in your life, and and they don't see it. And their response was something like this I don't see it. I haven't seen it. But please pray for me to see it. Because if it displeases my father, I want it to displease me. It's who they are. I think you could call them normal Christians. Here's the point. They're filled with the Spirit. It's that simple. They're filled with the Spirit. And these three symptoms are present in their life and even through them present in the body, the local church of which they are a part. This is my prayer. You may be expressive in worship. Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord. Raise your hands if you want to raise your hands. Kneel down if you want to kneel down. If you can't bring yourself to raise your hands because you feel like, as it were, you're doing it for show, don't. That's okay. It's possible to raise your hands and not be filled with the Spirit. It's possible to be filled with the Spirit and not raise your hands. That's possible. And vice versa. You may be one who has experienced tremendous signs and wonders in your life. God has done miraculous things and you would tell the stories about how God has intervened in your life and performed things that no one can explain. Praise the Lord for that. Indeed, if that's the case, we would would assign that to the work of the Spirit of God. You may be someone, you've prayed, you've asked God to rescue you and he's never answered that prayer with a miracle For which you asked. There are miracles that you don't know about, not the least of which is your perseverance in the midst of suffering. But he's never answered the cry, heal me miraculously, or heal so and so miraculously, with a yes. He chooses to do so at times, chooses not to do so at times. Let me exhort you, brothers and sisters, and in closing, As a church. That's not three, by the way. That included the one that was just before it. (laughs) Let me exhort you and encourage you. When the Spirit of God is present powerfully, when the Spirit of God is filling us, there is a generous commonality. There is gospel proclamation, preaching. There also is godly fear. We do not want to displace our Father. May the Lord work these symptoms in and among us as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel at times I get carried away on these truths. I'm grateful for a congregation that sits patiently and listens because they aren't here to listen to me. They're here to listen to you God, I pray that you would continue the work that you have begun, a work that you began not here at First Baptist Powell, a work that you began thousands of years ago. In a church in Jerusalem, filling them with your spirit in such a way that they showed symptoms of the presence of your spirit. Oh God, continue to fill us with your spirit. Grant us the joy of being a church that shows a watching world and one another what it means to walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of our flesh. We pray these things with eager anticipation and confidence in your mercy together through Christ.